This is the MagicWordPodcast.com. Hello, this is Scott Wells for the MagicWordPodcast.com. This week's episode is brought to you by Magic at the Beach in Myrtle Beach coming up October 5th, 6th, and 7th. For more information, go to magicatthebeach.org. We're going to talk with Charles Bach, one of the organizers, a little bit later during this podcast. But go check it out. I'm going to be there. I hope to see you there then as well. This week's podcast features Harry Maurer, who is someone who is a cruise ship magician. And a lot of times when people go to sea, they tend to get forgotten about as far as the rest of the magicians go. Harry is not someone who works at magic conventions very often, although he does attend every once in a while and had occasionally attended the TAOM convention here in Houston, Texas. And just this past weekend was one of the opening acts at the Texas Association of Magicians convention on Friday night and went over just Great. He was very well accepted by all the magicians. They were talking about him and saying, who is this guy? How come we haven't seen or heard of him before? Because, again, he kind of, I wouldn't say has a low profile, but he is, again, when he's not working out at sea, he does have theater shows that he does. He books a lot of things independently across the country. He was Atlantic City nominated for Entertainer of the Year. He has also performed in Las Vegas on casino showrooms. He, when he was in college, he worked at the Playboy Club with for about 1,500 shows. He'll talk about that a little bit later, too. But I think one of the things that's fascinating as well is he has a presentation that he gives on the war magician. It was masculine. And many years ago, when I first got this podcast started back, well, it was in 2011, but he was one of the early ones at episode 40 that I spoke with him briefly. I went to see his presentation that he'd given at a local college here, and it was really good. And we talked for about a little less than 12 minutes, actually. So you can go back to that episode 40, or if you are a subscriber to the pod letter, there's a link to that, this week's pod letter that tells you where to go, that you can go back and and, and hear our, our brief chat, in which he talks a little bit more at length about the war magician than he does here in this particular episode. But there is a lot of ground that he covers, but more importantly, there are just some fascinating stories uh, that uh, Harry shares with us. We recorded this earlier this year when we were sitting outside of his house in the backyard, so you can kind of hear some wind noise a little bit in the background, so I apologize for some of the distractions you might hear because of the quality of the audio may not be what I would prefer from week to week. And uh, we enjoy a, a couple of martinis and a nice Cuban cigar while we're having our friendly chat. I know that you'll enjoy it, so please welcome my friend this week, Mr. Harry Maurer, here on The Magic Word. I have been wanting to have a conversation with our guest here today for a long number of years, and let me kind of recap. I, we did talk uh, quite some time ago uh, when he was giving a presentation at a local college here about the war magician, and we'll get into that perhaps a little bit then as well. But uh, my friend Harry Maurer is uh, someone who has been nominated for Atlantic City's Entertainer of the Year, or was it Comedian of the Year? I think it was Entertainer of the Year for Best Opening Act. For Best Opening Act, there you go, in, in Atlantic City, uh, and has been working 
uh, cruise ships all over the world, or as Scott Hollingsworth used to say at the Magic Island, from coast to coast. <laughs> cruise ships from coast to coast. That was so funny when he'd say something like that. Uh, but has uh, been traveling uh, a lot, and so it's difficult to try to trap uh, Harry when he's actually going to be in and around home. And so we are out in his backyard right now enjoying a martini and a uh, Cuban cigar. So uh, there we go. And so let me introduce my good friend and yours, Harry Maurer. Hey there, Harry. How are you, sir? It's a pleasure to be here because it's my home. <laughs> it is your home. So yeah. You, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because a lot of times you are other places, and mainly when you're cruising, you seem to to have Asia as your main area, isn't it? I love Southeast Asia when we can do it. Uh, you know, it, unfortunately, I think over the, over the course of time, what they've been doing is using a lot of local acts, acts that may be American who live in Southeast Asia. So they do that now to save some money. But every once in a while, I do get to Southeast Asia. And I know I'm going to Japan again uh, sometime towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but otherwise, most of my stuff is either going to be in South America, uh, Alaska, Canada, um, uh, Caribbean, things like that. Mo- that's most of the jobs. But do you speak uh, Asian languages, or is it mainly English-speaking guests who are on the ships? It's, ma- it's, it's mainly English-speaking je- guests. Years ago, I was on a ship, and it was called the Song of Flower, and that was the original Regent Cruise Line Then, when they had one ship. And that was owned by one Japanese lady named Mizonaka. And she used to bring all of her guests in from Japan. She lived yeah. in, in uh, I, I believe, in Tokyo. But she brought all of her guests in, and none of them spoke English, hmm. which was hysterical because <laughs> I would sit there and do magic, and they still had, had a ball with it because I would do things like I'd bring somebody up, and I always ask what they do for a living, and they don't want to tell you, but they're, you know, they're, they're part of the guests on board, and they, they talk, and her, she is very influential guest. So the president is a, the guy's like the president of Honda Motor Company. <laughs> it's like, okay. okay, and I pull out a guillotine, and he's like, no! <laughs> <laughs> So because of that, it becomes funnier and funnier. Well, did you have or do you have uh, interpreters who are translating to? Not at that time. Not really. And, you know, we learned a little bit of Japanese to say hello and goodbye and and just to be kind. And a lot of the social etiquette things that you're supposed to do, like if somebody gives you a business card. You hold both hands. You hold it with both hands. You study both sides of the card. You you never put it in your pocket. You You put it on the table next to you. And then after the conversation, when you're about to leave, you pick it back up again, you look at it again, you, you bow to him, and then you can put it in your pocket. Hmm. I guess that's just showing honor to the name or something. Yeah. Or it's just there, I know that there is a procedure for everything. Uh, it seems like whether it's a tea ceremony or, as you say, just an exchange of business card ceremony, basically. Well, there's certain cultures that, you know, you can't point a finger at somebody. That would be very insulting to do that. I think you told me once before... There are some places you've traveled where you can't put your shoes with the soles facing up. You can, yeah, you, your your feet can't be pointed at somebody, that, which is why they put them underneath. Yeah, they, 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 they in, sort in your of baggage, pull, pull whenever them underneath the, like this. No, I mean in your baggage, whenever you're shipping something that's in your suitcase. I've heard that you like in some Arabian Arabic com- countries that it's it's like you're showing the bottom of your feet to someone. You know, you can't. Do that, even I, in your suitcase. I'm sure there's different countries. I, I keep forgetting all of the, the different niceties that you have to do. But there's certain countries, too, you can't, you know, it would be very sweet in the United States with a little boy and you tap him on the head or something like that. But in some countries, that's terribly insulting. Really? Yes, you can't do that. To say, you know, like we'd say, hey, good lad, and you'd tap him on the head. And you, some countries, that's frowned upon. Huh? Right. Huh. Right. Speaking of that, we are in a 
time, an age of political correctness that, uh, and all kinds of things that are happening. Do you see in foreign countries, particularly on cruise ships, where that's happening there? I mean, do you have to worry about the changes of, of uh, you, what you're saying? Do you have to change your... Uh I think it's more just in the United States. I don't see it everywhere else. That's what I, I wondered. I see it here, you know, and I, it's very strange to me about how people get insulted if you call someone or she. You know, I don't even get that whole thing about they, thy, whatever the, right. that whole thing is. Right, right. I don't get it. Yeah. And if I experienced it once, you know, with somebody, and I, I and and. Um, but you do a lot of shows here in the states. Obviously, when you're yeah. stateside, you're performing a lot of corporate shows and everything else. And I so. think that you know, it's funny. I'm reevaluating certain tricks and certain lines that I do, only uh-huh. because I do think that maybe times have swayed a little bit to to be a little. And I, I you know, I don't do a dirty act no. in any way. No, no, no. I, I, I do double entendres, and I do sure. a fun fun things. I just have fun, and I would never do something to somebody else who, that I wouldn't want to happen to me. Sure. And I think. It was even Dean Martin when he was with the Rat Pack when he was performing. He would say, "Hey, it's just a joke, folks. Just a jo- I'm just joking." Yeah, you know? even back then. Yeah, way back oh, then. That's a good point. You know, and and and, and you know, it, we're just having fun. You know, that's all it is. And hopefully, people look at it that way because that's the way it should be. I mean, if you're taking entertainment so seriously, you, you get out of the room. Well, that's true. I, we've talked about that on this podcast on several occasions, where you know Jerry Seinfeld and other professional comics say, "I can't work colleges anymore," you know, because of the political correctness or the language I have to use or can't use or whatever. It's like certain things that they deem, certain comedians deem as funny, won't play in certain colleges. Uh, I forgot who I was. Um, I, I read an article about from, from somebody. I'm trying to remember who it was, but they were talking. And it, it, it's a named comedian. And he was talking about the fact that, you know, you just go with the, with the, uh, the, the way that um, the culture is and it'll, it'll come back again. It'll come back and forth, you know, because it's done this before. It's a pendulum, basically. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it is. And so, yes, you adapt to the times, but mm-hmm. then don't get so uh, don't get so worried about it because it will come back again. Uh, good point. For an example, right now, as we speak, we're talking about there's a Ukrainian war going on, and if you make fun of the Russians, it's probably in vogue because they're the bad guys, if you will, you know, who yeah. are who are causing the war, you know, yeah. in Ukraine. So it'd be funny to say something about them, but in Peace times, maybe it wouldn't be so funny. Well, wasn't it Copperfield when he was in? He was in. He was performing in Russia, and they wouldn't let his equipment out. He had to pay a million dollars to get his equipment yeah, out of he Russia. He was glad to get out, and I think, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't even like to talk about that because it was, I guess, pretty serious, pretty bad situation. Talk <laughs> about that, and talk about the time he got robbed. What? Oh yeah, he got stuck. He was, somebody held him up. He, he and somebody else were held out up. There. David Copperfield. They held up Do- overseas someplace. Well, yeah, no, I, it was in the United States, I believe, and it was funny because he did, did something magical that you would know, and I don't want to give it away. With, but, a, with a cane? No, no, he would. <laughs> that's the that's the magician. That's the TV. Oh. That's the TV series, the magician. <laughs> no, he had the money in his pocket, oh. and he was able to pull his pocket inside, inside out, out. So he had no money. Okay. You know, which you know what I'm talking that about. That rings a bell. Yeah. Okay. That happened, I think, in New York or something, I think, uh, some time ago. I, I, I do remember this story now. It probably wasn't New York because New York doesn't uh, – you, you, it's illegal to have a gun in New York City. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Supposedly. Well, so – Maybe things have changed. I don't know. Somebody had a gun. It's been a long time. And, I mean, you're right. People wouldn't, wouldn't do something illegal in, in New York. So <laughs> – I'm sure, I'm sure that's right. Uh, kind of got off the topic over here, but uh, on cruise ships, again, that you're kind of going on and off. And then when you're back uh, home, that you're doing a lot of shows, not only corporately, but but you, uh, you've you done some phone room shows, I think, in your life probably, too, haven't you? I've never done – well, I wouldn't call them phone room shows. I, I mean, I do I do uh, sort of uh, these, these restaurant venues that I'm doing, and mm-hmm. they work out really well. 
I mean, I'm really, I'm amazed. We've done one of them now for over a year. And uh, we do a show almost once a month. And, and the funniest thing is that we do... Um, we do some some we do we do a lot of promotion with it, but it, the funny thing is that I don't think any of it's paid advertising, and we every show we've had has been packed, and even this past month, which is we're dealing with uh, rodeo, and we're dealing with right. spring break, right? Um, a lot of competition. We did well. We did well. It wasn't packed, but that that's the one month we had the lowest numbers. But I know I was in other restaurants on a Friday night. During rodeo, I just walked in just to see what's going on. It was empty. I'm talking not a soul was in that restaurant. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, I know also, is it the month of February? I think you go down to Florida and you've got some shows you do across the country. I, do Jan- there. I, I usually tour in January and February. I'm usually in Florida and Georgia and uh, South Carolina uh, during that period of time. And Carolina and, I loved, Carolina and I love doing that only because we get to uh, we get a, an Airbnb. We sort of just... Usually stay in one area, or maybe we'll get another use place someplace else. Use as your headquarters else. and kind of... And use that as our headquarters yeah. and go out. And it's not like being on the road where you're staying in a hotel. Because uh-huh. to be honest with you, if I had to stay in a hotel all the time, it would I'd, I would hate it. This way I can cook. I can live a real life. You know, we've got a... Uh, you know, usually we get, we get a place with a pool, you know, so we can actually just relax and just enjoy ourselves. And the funny thing is that, we, you know, it's, it's, it's an expense that we have as a business... But we're out and, and doing our shows uh, around the state, or around the states, I should say. Mm-hmm. And we love doing that. And we're arranging these different tours now in different areas of the country. How do you and, book those? Ooh, a lot it's got to be difficult. It's, it's very difficult. A lot of it's just literally marketing and calling people and, and seeing what you can arrange and lining things up. You know, there's some theaters that I do down there. Uh, there's some, um, some colleges that I do down there. Uh, some, a couple of country clubs, you know, it, it's 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 a variety of different things. But usually, when I get one booking, I'll start calling around the area to see if I can line other things up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you partner with uh, going back to phone rooms? I mean, like with the Kiwanis or Lions Club or anything like that? Or I've never done that. Okay, never done that. You know, it's interesting to me. I've heard of people who've done it, and they said that they, you know, they get paid and they go to these venues and there's nobody there. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, I've, I've done a phone room show. A couple, a few times, uh, and when you show up in like a big theater, and they say it's a sellout, and I'm expecting the theater to be like 1,500 people there, and they're yeah. like 30. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All the tickets are sold, but you know, you know, it's 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 not a lot of fun to be in a big room with a small audience. It's not True. a lot of fun. I mean, I can do a small room with a small audience. You know, that, that's fine. But I mean, it's death, especially when they're spread out. If you go to a theater, like when the cruise ships started coming back again. Yeah. And not many people were cruising, yet they needed to have entertainment. So we would entertain, and people would still be masked and all of this other stuff. And you'd look at the audience, a, a room that seats 1,800 people. You know, they have 200 people, and they're spread out. Not they're good. not even sitting together. Close together. Yeah, yeah. clustered. If you were going to have a show and you had a smaller audience, you know you would control them to be in a certain area. Even in Vegas, the big showrooms, when they do things like Matt King used to have a show mm-hmm. uh, at the, um, he's now at the, at the um, Excalibur. Excalibur, but when he, when he was at the Harris. Riviera, Harris? Yeah, Harris. And he was in the showroom at Harris. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, they would sort of have these curtains that would close off the back areas of the right. theater. Keep people from going, and forces them closer to front. Yeah, so it becomes right. a small theater, which right. is great. That's the best way to do it. I think it's a great way to do it. Yeah, I've seen some uh, other theaters that have done that because they just can't book a thirteen hundred, you know, or, or Celine Dion kind of a of a showroom, yeah. you know, for a smaller act, and you got to get people kind of pressed close. It kind of reminds me of a jam auction, you know. You want to jam people, 
closer <laughs> to the front of the stage, you know, to kind of enjoy the whole thing that, that that's happening over there. Uh, do you think that cruise, cruising and uh, performing on cruise lines has changed since COVID? I, I think the audiences have been incredibly more appreciative. More, more appreciative. Oh, because, you know, something they haven't enter, had entertainment in a long time. And uh-huh. because of that, when they come and say they see a show, they are there for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's a great thing. I think they really value the entertainment now. Whereas before, it was just an activity. It's like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to go or not. But then, now they go to the shows and they're very, very appreciative. I mean, I, I, I can't think of times that uh, comedians or anybody who's been on stage has not gotten a standing ovation. I mean, people, people are really that appreciative. Are there a, uh, is there a variety act that you think tends to get better reaction than others? I mean, a comedian, a juggler, a singer, a dancer, a magician? The production shows, I think, the because the, the cruise lines spend millions and millions of dollars on these production shows. So sure. they will always get a good turnout, and they'll always get great reactions. Those big uh, reviews from, like, uh, New York Broadway mm-hmm. productions and kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the comedians, what, I, and I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about the comedians. I think the comedians don't get the same kind of response that they would, uh, that the other acts would get on stage, and the reason being because there's normally a comedy club on the ship itself, and what they do is they're performing. Really? Yeah, they're performing like three nights uh, in a row on the in the comedy club, and then one night they're going to do the main showroom so in, everybody can see them. Okay, sure. But the thing is, because of that, they not only have they watered down their material because they've done it in the comedy club night after night after night, but all and, and they have to do something completely different on stage. So they're going to put their meat and potatoes into the comedy club show. But then when they go on stage, they're doing it, but they're also used to working a smaller room. So because of oh. that, they're not used to necessarily working 1,800 seats or 1,500 seats or whatever it may be, or 1,200 or whatever it may be. Sure. You know, because they're big, they're big theaters now. Yeah, they're like, yeah, it's 1,300, 2,000-seat theaters. Uh, yeah, when I started on cruise ships, it was a 500-seat lounge. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they didn't even have a theater. No, they, they, the Rotterdam, uh, yeah, the Rotterdam had a theater that was a movie theater and it would be the showroom itself uh, for the production show, maybe a, a grand production. Otherwise, you would perform in the, what's called the Queen's Lounge, which was a big ballroom kind of room. Mm-hmm. Or you'd work in the main lounge, which was a, uh, it was, um, a bandstand, you know, with a, dance, a small dance floor. And you'd work on the dance floor. Do you think cruise ships are looking more now, f- as they were before, for big illusion shows? Or they want to have someone who's going to be kind of performing in one and kind of like a comedian would? In other words, having smaller or fewer things, a parlor kind of... I think they're looking for smaller acts. I think the way that they've been doing it now, and I think it has a lot to do with COVID, uh, is they're bringing acts only in for a couple of weeks at a time. Oh, so you're not having to work for six months at a time. Okay. It would be very rare for that to happen. Uh, I think most of the most of the contracts are going to be a couple of weeks, maybe a month, mm-hmm. you know. And after that, and by the way, that would be a month uh, at the most, only because after that you have to have uh, training. You what cannot. There is. You have to be crew at that point. If you're on for more than thirty days, you have to be crew. Which means you have to, like HR, would take you through certain. You'd have to have lifeboat training. You'd have oh, to have uh, 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 emergency training and all of this other stuff. Because you you're part of the real crew. All of that. Gotcha. Uh, and because of that, and that, huh. that's actually a whole safety thing that they've done. So because of that, you can't be on for more than 30 days. I think one of our long-term contracts that we did was 30 days on, 30 days off, 30 days on, 30 days so off. So you didn't have to do and that. And they'd alternate us back and forth with another act. And they would do that. And the main reason was because of that law, because of that, that, that rule that the cruise lines have come up with. Now, those, most of the cruise ships are of 
international, uh, they fly under a flag, let's say, of Nor Norway or something, or England or America, I guess, or whatever. Uh, so do they have different laws that would apply to each of those ships? I think the laws have to apply to—it's international, because okay. I think the laws apply to any ship that actually um, brings on American passengers. You know, the same thing with the, the medical facilities have to be up to, up to par, things like that. Uh, you know, there's one American cruise line. There's one. It's Disney. No. no. Well, Disney's think, American, I, isn't it? I don't think it is. I think it's registered probably in Nassau or something like that. Huh. But the only one is the American Hawaii Cruises, which is part of NCL. It's mm. Norwegian American Cruise Lines. And what's interesting about that is that the first cruise li American cruise line in like 60 years. And because of that, they have had to hire, they have had to pay, pay minimum wage, which is unheard of on the cruise <laughs> lines. Uh, and and, and uh, the first year that they tried this, they had three ships in Hawaii. And the, the, let me explain why they did this. In Hawaii, if you're going to do a Hawaiian cruise and you fly to Hawaii and you're on any other cruise line, you must leave Hawaii and go down to the Fanning Islands, which is a two-day trip. You have to go down there and come back. because the Fanning Islands, is that part of Hawaii? It's, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole different uh, I don't know thing. What it is. I don't either. I don't think any <laughs> – it's pretty much like a, a, a gas stop is what it is. <laughs> okay. But the reason they do that is because of what's called the Jones Act. And the Jones Act is, says that any ship, any foreign ship, must uh, – if you're starting in a U.S. port, you have to go to a foreign port before you come back to a U.S. port again. Oh, I see. Huh. And that has to do with protecting the travel industry for the United States and things like this, supposedly, is what, what it's all about. However, uh, to bypass that, they had an American cruise line. So now you can literally fly to Hawaii, get on the ship, and you go in different ports in Hawaii. You don't have to waste your time going to someplace that's a nothing mm -hmm. port. Now, the first year that they did this, uh, uh, <laughs> Norwegian Cruise Lines lost every single penny they made on Norwegian cruise lines with the American cruise line uh, branch. Right. They lost it because people would fly, these Americans would fly in uh, to work on the ships, not the entertainers, but the, the, the crew. They'd walk in and they'd, like, they'd say, like, I'm not going to work that hard. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and then they, they get off the ship and now they live in Hawaii, Yeah, you know, is what they've done. And after, after $10,000 worth of training and, and uniforms and all of this other right. stuff for each of those crew members, they would lose people and bring people on, bring pe lose people, bring people on. I can't think of what the, what, the, what, the, what the terminology is. However, since they did that, now what they did to save money is they would actually hire, rather than having stewards all night long to be able to like service the cabins and okay. stuff like this, right. they'd be in a different Hawaiian port every single day. So what they would do is as they hit a port, they would have a crew of cleaning crew come on and clean all the cabins, and then they'd leave. And they only have to pay other than the hourly wage that they were on board rather than sp being on for 24 hours. Oh, because the people who were there for 24 hours, they were having to pay 24 hours at minimum wage. Yeah, they have to pay them for wow. minimum wage. Wow. So they did that for a while, and then finally they were losing so much money, yet it was so beneficial to the Hawaiian Islands to be able to do this. They made concessions, and they allowed them to hire a certain percentage of non-American crew that they could pay normally, that normally what they normally, the cruise lines pay. Which, by the way, don't think badly about that because, you know, in certain countries, you know, you can pay a, a certain amount of money. I mean, a, a yearly salary could be $10,000 right. for somebody in a, in a foreign country. So you're paying them very well, you know, and they're living very well. And, in fact, I, I've, you know, I remember being, I had a driver uh, who was a, a good friend. He became a very good friend in Thailand. 
God, I, he, he invited me to his house for dinner. We had no idea what to expect. Caroline and I arrived, and we had this incredible feast. It was amazing. He lived in a four-story house, in a beautiful, beautiful family. It, 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 it was incredible, incredibly clean, a really nice guy, and he, he, he lives very, very well. And I know he doesn't make the kind of money that we would make in the United States, but he does really, really well with what he does. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember talking with someone who was traveling out of Galveston, and he was an Indian, and he wasn't making but like, I don't know, $300 a week or something, and he was sending us back home, you know, yeah. and he said, you know, it's, it's a fortune to them. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. I know people so. who work on the ships who were in the band. He owns a castle. <laughs> oh man! You know, it was, it was a castle in like Romania. It's like amazing. <laughs> wow! I know that that uh, also there are people who are on contract who get out of college and they're thinking we're going to be a singer and dancer and they've been in theater and so we're going to work on a cruise ship and they soon find out this is not really what they signed up for. Uh you know, I have to. Uh, I've got to say that if you're involved in theater. And you want to work on a cruise ship? It'd probably be the best, best experience you could ever have. Really? Okay. And one of the reasons is because the the cruise lines, their facilities are better than Broadway theaters. It's amazing. But they also require you, also, if I'm not wrong, Mm -hmm. about uh, doing other things as far as waiting tables and calling bingo and shuffleboard and everything else. I mean, don't you have other crew duties, or do they have you just as a singer dancer? No, no, I'm not talking about singer dancer. I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you're going to be a stagehand or a, oh, a, a technical oh, oh. person oh, on the ship. Oh, I see what you're saying. If you're doing that, that's all you're really doing. But you're yeah. doing different lounges. You're doing the outside stuff that sure. they're doing. You're bringing the equipment back and forth. You're doing the, the setting up the band. You're, you're doing all of this stuff. However, it's all involved in theater. And, yes, you still have to have training, and you still have to be able to do the lifeboat training, and you have to be able to do safety, uh, safety training and things like that. And you're still considered crew. Right. You're paid pretty decently to do that however your experiences that you'll have the, the the equipment's amazing what they have on board it's amazing what they have in fact i remembered um there were some magazines i'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the the theater magazines i used to subscribe to but there was one that talked about like one of the royal caribbean ships and they were explaining how how advanced it is and the technology that they have and, and the safety things that they have that you don't have on land. Hmm. For example, all of your lights that are up on, uh, up on the grid. Intelligent lighting, probably. Well, intelligent lighting. But besides that, LEDs. it has to be, uh, it, it literally has to be anchored up there. They have, hmm. have to have a cable and a safety lock that keeps it up there only because of vibration. Oh, the ship. It could fall. Oh, uh, of course. It could fall. You don't know. Right. You know, you don't have that problem on Broadway. Right. You know, or in Las Vegas or things like this. In fact, in Las Vegas, I remember uh, one of the things that just blew my mind was when Celine Dion came and he, she did her, her, um, her shows at, the, at Caesar's Palace in, in Las Vegas. Her showroom was designed for her. Correct. So that where she is standing is a constant 70 degrees and 50 percent humidity. I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, where she's little, standing. Where she's like she's an standing. X right there. Because there's something that's called <laughs> Vegas throat. Vegas throat. It's called I Vegas throat. I have heard throat. this. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got a friend. His name is Clint Holmes. And Clint Holmes did an entire... I remember be, him... Is he the country do, western guy? No, he's... Um, he's he, No, he's a singer-dancer. He's... A, he's uh, God, he's more jazz. Okay. He's more of a jazz guy. However... Um, he was, he did a uh, I think it was a special on on like PBS or something like this about Vegas throat and he explains that he does his shows at night and when he finishes his shows he does not speak to anyone 
He doesn't speak until the next day at noon. He goes to the gym. He has an entire gallon of water that he drinks while he's going to the gym. Yep. He doesn't speak at all. And finally, after 12 o'clock, he can start speaking because otherwise his voice will be gone. And there's a lot of people whose throats are just shot. It's from, because of how dry it is out there? Because how dry it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. You know, I remember being uh, – I was in uh, – I was in Vegas one week at the Tropicana Hotel. I did one week at the Tropicana, and the next week I'm supposed to be in Laughlin. And so they sent a limousine from uh, the Tropicana to take me to Laughlin, and they pick us up at night. You know, I don't think much about it. They take me to the hotel. I go to the hotel. I go to the hotel. I go to sleep. The next morning, I know there's a coffee shop across the street and some stuff. I can pick up some snacks to put in the room. So I literally walk to the front door of the hotel and the door opens, and it, I don't realize it's smoked glass, but it opens up, and you are pelted with heat to the point where <laughs> I, I, I actually started laughing because it's like, yeah, I went <gasps> like this because you couldn't breathe. I mean, it literally felt like, and people say this, it's like, it's like walking into an oven. It literally was like that, and I had to laugh about this because it was, it's 20 degrees hotter in Laughlin than it is in Las Vegas. And so you got and the humidity is higher? Um, no, it's probably drier. Okay. It's probably, it's probably just as dry. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, dry is dry. Yeah. But you go out there and it's just, you're, you're being pelted with this heat and it's almost comical. It really is comical. And I, I, I realize how hard it must be for entertainers, you know, to be able to work in, in these different casinos like this. But I think a lot of the showrooms have, have changed a bit, especially the ones like the Garth Brooks when he comes in and stuff. I think all of those theaters now are probably uh, designed the same way that Celine Dion's Celine was. was yeah. yeah, I mean, for those high-dollar guys. Oh, my gosh, yeah, because yeah. you can't afford to lose your voice no. and, and not work. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing I remember seeing um, uh, Wayne Newton. I, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> uh, Lance, Lance Burton was across the street. He was, he, I'm at the Tropicana. Lance is at the, at the Monte Carlo at the time. Right. And Lance and I, he's a nice guy. He's such a yeah. sweet guy. And, and, and he's, he's always been very welcoming to me. And I would always have Mondays off. So I would, I would say, okay, let me, let me stop over. And, and, and I'd call and say, you know, I, I'm in town. Would you mind if I come see the show? And his assistant, Edelin, would arrange things. And I remember Lance would do his entire show. And I remember he, like, vanishes and appears inside of the chandelier. And he lowers down. And the seat they put me on is the seat that Lance could put his arm on top of my shoulder so he can get down. <laughs> And Lance goes on stage, and he does the whole thing where he makes this Corvette float in the air and stuff like this, and it floats down, and he gets off the stage. He gets off of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Corvette, and he says, folks, I have, I have friends in the audience. And he, he, he acknowledges people. Now, this is a very common thing. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was working uh, years ago in Atlantic City, and I was working with Joey Bishop, part of the Rat Pack, and Joey Bishop would always acknowledge these stars that came into the room who's working literally across the street. And I said to him, why are you acknowledging these people? He said, because we already got their money. He says, it's a great thing to let them know that other entertainers are coming to see our show. What do you mean, our show? You mean talk about in other words, room? when I was working with Joey Bishop in the show, in the showroom. In other words, it's great to oh. be able to acknowledge somebody in the audience who's a star across the street. Yes. Because it's a, it's, it's a wonderful promotion for your own show that stars are coming to Come see Come to you. see me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so I learned that from him. So anyway, Lance would acknowledge me in the audience, which is a sweet thing to do. Yeah. Okay. And so he says, I've got a friend in the audience. His name is Harry Maurer. Harry, stand up. Take him out. And I, I stood up, and they put the spotlight on me. Now, normally that's the end of it. Now, Lance, Lance sits there for five minutes on stage, and he says, Harry, have you seen Wayne Newton's show yet? 
I said, no. He says, oh, he says, are you kidding me? He says, he just opened up over at the Stardust. You got to go see Wayne Newton's show. It's like going back to school for an entertainer. He goes and rambles on for like minutes. And for me, it During a like, show? During the show. And I'm standing there in a spotlight. And I'm like, oh, this is really awkward. <laughs> And afterwards, I, you know, we go backstage and we're hanging out. And yeah. I said, I said, were you like joking around about out there with me? He says, no. He says, he says, literally, you got to go see the show. It's like going back. For, uh, it's like going back, going back to school. So I said, okay, I got to go see Wayne Newton's show. <laughs> so I sat there and I, I got tickets. And I, it took me a while to do this. I had to actually come back into town because he was on tour in, in he was doing the the USO tours. No, oh. so. I I finally got to see him, and I brought a friend of mine with me. We came to see the show, and Wayne Newton. Honest to God, he has no voice left. And I'm not saying anything bad. I think anybody who sees this show would probably say the same thing. He has no voice left, yet it was one of the most entertaining shows I've seen. Because of his personality? Well, he was brilliant because he, he knows every trick in the And actually, that's what Lance said. He knows every trick in the book. Uh. He would sit there and he'd sing Donka Shane. He'd walk around. He'd kiss all the ladies. He shakes hands. He stops for the photos as he's singing. He does this whole round around the room. And this is when he was at the Stardust Hotel. Yeah. And then he goes on stage and he says, Maitre d' bottle of champagne for table 42 is 27 35 he names out like like 10 tables yeah and i'm saying this is some sort of gag and then the trumpet player does a solo bit that he does and then wayne comes out and does another song and then suddenly after that song the doors in the back of the room burst open and these waiters come in a procession of waiters with bottles of champagne <laughs> and they bring them to these tables yeah. and i had to think about this thing now what now why would he do that every single night and i realized you know he's getting up in years yeah. But he goes around, and he's very famous for kissing all the ladies. Right. He pisses the husbands off. <laughs> but now... They They're the ones go, who bought the tickets. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. But now they go home, and, and, and the ladies say, and Wayne Newton came over and kissed me. And the husband will chime in and say, and he bought us a bottle of champagne. I'm yeah. like, holy cow, how brilliant is that? That is. I mean, honestly, what does the bottle of champagne cost him? Five bucks? Right. I'm, I'm sure... That he's got some sort of a bulk deal, but it's making yeah. <laughs> making him look like right. very magnanimous during this whole time. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I once, many years ago, saw Sammy Davis Jr. perform uh, in Vegas. And so you've been back in Vegas a long time. Like I said, you're working with all those guys. W- was there someone who kind of stands out in your mind that you can think of that you work with or you know there's one saw. person who always stand stood out in my mind and i was working the playboy club in new york mm-hmm. and his name is ben powers and Don't know ben him. powers was he's a black uh singer comedian uh impressionist hmm. incredible act and he was on he was on the tv series good times he was actually the husband of the sister or something like that and i didn't know him from that i just knew him from working with him However, I learned so much from him. He was such an incredible performer. And we, at the time, I, w- I had an apartment in, in the village. And, we, and, and Ben, when he was working at the Playboy Club, had an apartment nearby. So every morning we'd get up and we'd jog around Washington Square Park. Mm-hmm. And I remember one night I was on stage and I was performing and I was doing my show. And I, it, there was a heckler that I just couldn't stop. I, 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 mm. he, just, he was just a terrible heckler. And I walked. And you didn't upstage. get security to get him out. No, they don't do that. <laughs> okay, this is they back in the mob that. days. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I was in the dressing. I, I, I went back into the dressing room and I sat down. Now, I normally, traditionally, I would run around to the front of the house and I'd watch the show. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do that. I was just pissed. And so I sat there in the dressing room. And Ben does the show and he comes back and he, he says, he says, "Oh, Harry," he says, "You weren't out there. I wanted to show you what to do." 
what to do. Yeah, he's he's he, because there was this drunk heckler. He walked out on stage. He does this incredible singing, and people love him and stuff yeah. like this. And he's smiling at the audience. And as he turns towards that size of the audience, his smile goes away, and he just sort of looks at the audience. And he starts playing more towards the other side of the audience until everybody in the audience starts saying to the heckler, "Would you shut up? Wow! Would you stop it? You know, step. You know, and and so suddenly, got the audience on his side exactly. And wow. suddenly he wins them over. What a great story! Yeah, uh, I mean, and it was, I remember. Uh, it, not only was he so helpful to me learning about things like that, and I got to work with so many great acts. It, it taught me a lot. And um, and I remember at the end of the run, I gave him a silver lighter. Because he would smoke cigarettes. He gave him a silver lighter, and all it said was, thanks. I just engraved it saying, thanks. <laughs> I'm going to ask you in a moment about your greatest stories like that of some people who have changed your life. But before we do, we need to get another martini. I do. We need to take a break. I think we're going to take a break. Hold it right here. I'm with Charles Bach right now, who is going to tell us a little bit about the magic at the beach, which is happening in Myrtle Beach on October the 5th, 6th, and 7th. Hello there, Charles. How are you doing? Well, hi there, Scott. Great to, great to be here. I, th- I'm looking forward to this convention. And as I've been looking at it online at magicatthebeach.org, I've been looking at some of the talent. But uh, just for some of those people who haven't had a chance to go and check out the website yet, tell me about some of the great uh, people who are going to be attending here and and, and performing. Well, absolutely. We could not be more excited to have a wide range of performers to hit almost every area of magic that that you you would probably love. So we have Greg Fruin, who has a theater in Niagara Falls. He's coming down to do some illusions and magic, and he's definitely going to bring some bring out the big guns. It's going to be really cool to have him here. And then we have Dan Harlan, who is a very famous magician uh, for fooling Penn and Teller on Fool Us with his famous cartoon. And he's going to be right here lecturing and performing at the shows as well. And there's Eric Buss from America's Got Talent semifinals. He's going to be here making the making the laughs and doing some of his signature pieces right here. We have Chip Romero, who's not only going to perform in the show, he's going to lecture from his FISM lecture right here about Doug Henning's world of magic. He's the largest collector of Doug Henning memorabilia in the world, and he'll be right here with us. And then there's Carrie Pollock, who has the Comedy Magic Cabaret in Hilton Head, South Carolina. He's going to be bringing the laughs and bringing his special original magic here as well and then those that like the card magic steve beam is going to be here performing in our close-up show as well as lecturing on his incredible card magic right here at the theater and there's more there's more there's john Chirac, who is a triple threat magician with a close-up stage and parlor he'll be performing right here on the stage direct from caesar's palace christian miro an international performer from spain Wacky Chad, a stunt comedian uh, and busker, will be lecturing and performing. Amazing Adams, one of the top children's performers in Chicago, will be lecturing on the business of children's entertainment. And me too. I'll be doing some magic too. <laughs> wow. That is more than just a mouthful. That is a full weekend. Uh, it sounds like day and night of lots of things that are going to be going on. Now, I know we're going to be having the activities mostly there in your theater, in the uh, Wonders Theater of Char- uh, Charles Bach. Or will people be able to just hang out there or how late will your theater be open? So the theater is open morning to night. We actually have a Houdini Lounge that will be located in our balcony area, which is going to be a place to hang and jam and do some things together and mm-hmm. It's going to be decorated with Houdini memorabilia as well. That sounds cool. Sounds like a lot of fun. And the dates again are October 5th, 6th, 7th. That's right. And it's at magicatthebeach.org. 
There we go. Go check it out, guys and gals. And uh, register today. Now's the best time to do that so you don't get left out. This is going to be awesome. Hope to see you there. Thanks, Charles. And we're back. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good martini. Let me just take a sip of this. this Very good. Hmm. Well, first of all, I've got to say that, Scott, you make a great martini. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for a while. <laughs> and you provide a good cigar. Thank you very much. I think we're a good team. Cuban cigars. <laughs> How could you go wrong? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so where we left off was talking about some lessons you've learned uh, from people you work with in Vegas and handling hecklers and that kind of a thing. So, I, I, You know, there, there was a time. I work with Joey Bishop, and I, I mentioned that before. And yes. Joey Bishop was one of the Rat Pack. Correct. He was probably the, un- the people don't, people don't think of as the Rat Pack. Well, another person they don't think of as part of the Rat Pack was, uh, oh, golly, uh, lost, uh, lo- uh, Peter, La- Peter, Peter Lawford. Lawford. Yeah. Peter Lawford, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's true. And, I, I, you and know, even Shirley McLean. I was going to just about to say Shirley <laughs> McLean, too. She was in the audience. I, I mentioned about earlier do, uh, seeing the show with uh, Sammy Davis Jr., and uh, he was asked to, people were clamoring, saying, can you do Mr. Bojangles? He said, oh, I'm just not feeling it tonight. I'm not feeling it, you know. And so it's like, okay, fine. Uh, but the next night I heard that Shirley McLean was in town, and he did it because, you know, she's there. It's like, you're a friend, and I'll do it for you, you know, kind of a thing. So I knew she was, anyhow, she was part of that. Sorry, I got off on a mm-hmm. tangent. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> These are conversations. It's great. <laughs> so anyhow. No, Joey Bishop. Joey Bishop, which, by the way, if you, uh, when Joey died, jo- Joey passed away. When he passed away, I said, you know what? I've never heard Live at the Sands with the Rat Pack. You so mean I, the album? The you album. The, yeah, yeah. So I bought the album. Joey's oh, wasn't talking cool. it. Yet every joke that Joey had written in the, in, in the show was in that. So I really believe that he was the comic genius that actually wrote a lot of the interactions that they did in those, in those, those uh, uh, the Rat Pack shows. Didn't he serve as like the co-host or kind of like the ed mcmahon for somebody else seems like he was on uh another show or did he have the for joy what bishop I, for what, a television he had the joy show. bishop show okay. and from what i understand before johnny carson yeah he was actually given the contract for the tonight, tonight show, show? Well, this is what i was told oh. and they wanted johnny carson to come in so they actually bought joey bishop out of his contract that's what i remember huh that's what i remember so it could have been joy bishop instead of johnny carson true True. But, Joe, you know, the funny thing is, that, I mean, Johnny was such a warm yeah. personality. I mean, I can't imagine Joey Bishop doing, being uh, better than Johnny Carson. I yeah. really couldn't imagine yeah. that. However, I have to honestly say I cannot think of a show. Now, we were on the road for six months around the country and then four months in Atlantic City. We mean you and Joey. Uh, me and Joey Bishop. You were the and, opening act for him or something? Or Well, actually, it was there were 11 acts on the bill. What? It was called Tribute to Vaudeville, okay. starring Joey Bishop. And it was Joey Bishop and Jackie Vernon was there, mm-hmm. if you know who, who that is. It was a great comedian as well. He was one of those uh, guys who uh, didn't react. I mean, <laughs> what, what can deadpan, I say? Deadpan, very deadpan. Deadpan, that's yeah. what I'm trying to deadpan, say. Deadpan, yeah. <laughs> it, but hysterically funny. We had Peter, uh, Pierre DuPont and Sparky, which was the do-nothing dog. Which was so funny. <laughs> the do nothing. The do nothing. It, it was a real dog, not like a puppet. It was a real dog. It was. It was. He was, was a boxer, and and uh, and Pierre Dupont would dress up as a French policeman, and he would sit there and he would say, uh, he'd say, okay, he'd he'd hold a hoop out and he'd say, okay, jump, 
And the dog would do just sit down and do nothing. And he'd say, you want to see it again? <laughs> and then, But at the end, the dog would go nuts and just do all of this stuff. It was amazing what the dog did. <laughs> so uh, he traveled with you, and you went we, around the country? We were traveling around the country. And what I was saying about Joey Bishop is Joey Bishop really became a mentor to me. And he taught me a lot. One of the things he said to me, he said, try, if you're going to do a new joke, new joke, a new joke or a new bit, he said, try it out three times. He said, the first time. Try a joke in, three in times, real time, three in times. In real times in front of an audience, three times. Real the first, audiences, yeah. The first, time, the first time you do it, he says, it could be just your delivery, this, or, or it could be the audience. The second time, it could be either or, again. But by the third time, if it doesn't work, put it away. He says, and um, he doesn't say get rid of it. He just says, put it away, and, and you can rethink it another time and bring it back another time. There's times, and I can't think of routines in particular, but there are routines that I actually put away for a while, and I said, ooh, I got a better way of doing that. And then I would bring it back and do it. After you had actually... Well, I worked out something that said, oh, my God. You know, it's so funny. I remember doing my guillotine routine for years. And I would do the guillotine, and it didn't work. And I was like, I wasn't happy with the way the, the, the comedy. You did it more than three times. Well, well the, <laughs> the way the comedy would work. And I put it away for a while, and then I brought it back again. And I said, you know what it is? Because I would do this whole game show thing with the guy on, 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 the guy on stage. And it was a game show. that He and I, I'd ask him questions. He'd have to answer the questions before he wins. And if he doesn't win, then he has to put his head in the guillotine. But the thing is that I'd put him in the guillotine first, and I'd ask him the questions while he's in the guillotine, and nobody could see his reactions. Sure. So I realized it took me a long time to realize that, you know what, don't put him in the guillotine yet. Wait until Talk to it, him. Wait until it gets it wrong. Then put him in the guillotine. That's oh. where all the fun happens. It's one of those things that just takes time, and this flight time, where it has to take some time for you to perform, and knowing what's right and wrong, and doing it over and over until... You get that magic moment, and it's like, this is what i got to repeat. Well, this is what I feel bad about with magicians today, because there's no real place where you can go and actually Be bad. work for 10,000 <laughs> hours. Yeah, yeah, 10,000 hours. Exactly. Which is the Malcolm Gladwell thing. Yes. You know, and the funny thing is that, you know... We talked about that with Terry Ward recently, about the 10,000 hours. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's true, though. And, and actually, Jeff McBride calls it flight, uh, flight time. Mm -hmm. Flight time. And it's true. I mean, I realized that... My time at the Playboy Club, I did over 1,300 shows at the Playboy Club. Now, when you say the Playboy Club, you mean across the country? Not no, just New York just, City. Oh, just New York. Just New York City. 1,300 shows, which is more shows than most Broadway shows. Wow. But what's interesting about that is that I had that flight time. I had time. I, it, it, I, it was, uh, I'm trying to think if I did 30 minutes or 40 minutes a night. But I think it was 30 minutes a night, and I would do that repeatedly, two shows a night, three shows Friday, three shows Saturday, for 1,300 performances. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that, you know something, and this is what I realized also is when I'm working in new venues, and I do production shows. I work with Greg Thompson a lot. I, uh, Greg Thompson has production shows all over Vegas and Atlantic City and uh, all over the country. And when I did his production shows, I realized it always took two weeks it took me two weeks until I got used to the room, used to the people, and I felt free enough to be able to just improv. and Be, be yourself. And play around. No, yeah. I could play around. Okay, play around. Yeah. I mean, I was always, you know, my show would work however I did it. Sure. However, I could improv and actually play around. And the funny thing is when you're doing two shows a night, 
you know, you can sit there and, and play around and you can say, let me try something. And you try something. And if it doesn't work, you say, you know what? Okay, it didn't work. But you know what? I can make up for it at the 10 o'clock show. You know, so you have this opportunity to be able to, to be able to improve your show and experiment a little bit and be able to do things that the audience wouldn't necessarily – they don't know whether, you, whether that's part of your show or not. But you do it, and then if it doesn't work, it's not part of your show, but you right. experiment it. Right. And, and you, you're able to do it. There aren't many places where people can go and, and, as I said, be bad, where you can work out those kinds of things. But <clears throat> I can't believe the Playboy Club would have allowed you to have done something like that to kind of work on new stuff. So how'd that work well, out? When they, you know, I was in college at the time Okay. when I auditioned, and they had a thing in Variety, and somebody came up to me and showed me, in, it was in the Variety of Showbiz Magazine, and they showed me the ad, and they said they're looking for new acts at the Playboy Club. And I was in college at the time, and I yeah. said, uh, and they, they said they're auditioning for the month of June. Okay. Which is the heat of the summer in this in New York. You've heard of like the heat. The, the, the summers in New York are awful. Yeah, right. So I went and I, I signed up for an audition. Now, apparently, they audition people every single day for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And there was a line of people. And I remember being there with a, a singer named Juliet Bora. And there's a trio on stage. And the trio would sit there and play you know, the music for the act, whatever they needed. And they'd play. And the, the the leader of the band would leave, look over at the the uh, the entertainment actually the general manager of the hotel who's sitting there like a king in the VIP suit. Uh, <laughs> He's the one making the final decision. Yeah, I guess. The, and he would sit there and he would just make a certain nod and he would nod and say, "Okay, let it, let it do another one." And they would do another one and they'd sing another song or whatever. Now. Usually what would happen is with these different acts is they would go up there and they would audition and they'd do something and then Peter would be like like this. And the the band leader, um, and I'm, I'll think of his name in a minute, but anyway, he would just say, well, thank you very much and you know, we'll, we'll yeah. let you know. And I came on stage and I was told to prepare five minutes. Right. So I did five minutes. Okay. I did five minutes. That's I'm, hard to do. I would think when you have five minutes, I mean, you're going to be doing silk scarves, you're going to be doing some, some jokes or... What are you doing? What's so funny is that most of my show, most of my routines are maybe five minutes. My best routine is ten minutes long. Yeah, because there's so much that goes on throughout sure. the routine. So anyway, I did my five minutes, and then Peter Aravello, who's the general manager, who uh-huh. became a really uh, incredible mentor to me as well, he said to me, he 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 he's sitting at the booth saying, "Do you have any more?" I said, "Yeah," hmm. and I went back and set up another thing, and I came back and did another five minutes. He says. You got more? I said, yeah. I went back and did another five minutes wow. and came back. So I came back. At the end of the whole thing, there were only two people in the entire month who were hired. One was me and one was Juliet Bora. Juliet Bora was there for a little while, and I don't know what happened to her. She, uh, she never came back again. Hmm. And I was there for a couple of years. But she did perform at the club. She performed at the club. Okay. Did you ever work at Playboy After Dark? No. Remember that show? I do. I do. I wish I did. Wow, I did. I, I, you know, I didn't. I've never done a lot of TV. The TV I've, stuff I've done has been mostly local. However, there was. Remember, uh, that's incredible. Oh sure. Well, that's incredible. Yeah, Fran Tarkington and yeah. Well, they they filmed a thing at, at Victor's restaurant in New York City, okay. and my my manager at the time he said, "Harry, you got to come over and do this." So I did, and I came over and had Mister Jiggs. Mister oh. Jiggs is a monkey. Is <laughs> a monkey. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's uh, a orangutan. Uh, Dave Parr. Or not Dave Parr, uh, 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 before Johnny Jack Carson. Parr. Jack Parr, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had Mr. Jiggs, right? 
Mr. Jiggs. Yeah, Mr. Jiggs. Okay. Mr. Jiggs was he was able to uh, to actually be a bartender. And he was dressed as a bartender behind the, the bar at, at, at Victor's Restaurant in New, York, in New York. And he would sit there and he would make any drinks you want. You want a, you want a drink? You want a, a margarita or whatever? Even blended drinks he would blend. He would no sit way. There. The yeah, monkey seriously. would do this? The monkey would do this. Oh, no way. However, one night, I remember one, one of the drinks he did on, 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 the, seri- uh, on the, uh, the filming where we did, he forgot to put the cover on the blender and it went everywhere. <laughs> But what's so funny about him is Mr. Jiggs was an alcoholic. <laughs> so he when, drank, he made, when so he the made monkey the drink, drank. he would go and hand it to you, and then as soon as you grab it, he would just bring it back and just suck it down. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing this filming for, um, for, uh, for That's Incredible. And I remember doing this thing, and I said, let's do a gag. We'll do a thing. And I said, let me, do a, let me ask for a light beer. He gives me a light beer, and I pour the beer, and I let go of the glass, and it's floating in the yeah. air. And I said, ooh, that really is light. And the monkey would laugh and stuff like that. <laughs> so we're doing this filming, and the, 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 the director is sitting there and, and, and arranging the entire shot. And we're sitting there, and Mr. Jiggs likes you to scratch his head. Okay. So I'd scratch his head. And I'd talk to the director, and Mr. Jiggs would grab my hand and put it back on his on head. His head. <laughs> so I'd scratch his head. And then he would sit there, and he'd tap my head. He's like, good boy, kind of thing. And then he'd tap my head, and he took my head, and went, whack right onto the marble bar he was whacking my head onto the bar <laughs> and everybody jumped back and i yeah. was like i was okay but the thing is like whoa you yeah. know it, you know this is a, a weird experience it's a wild animal yeah it is <laughs> a weird alcoholic animal <laughs> alcoholic so i want to change the uh, topic completely because as we start to kind of get close to the end over here i want to talk there is a, no end there is no end i mean we could talk so much longer about Look how all much this. cigar we have still left. <laughs> we, and, and our martini, we just got a new one. Uh, about the war magician. So you have prepared, and, and as I said many years ago, probably about 10 years ago or so, that I had uh, talked with you about the uh, uh, war magician that you did over at Lone Star College. And it's a presentation that actually uh, is about... Go ahead, explain all this and what you... It's about magicians who've changed history, from averting political uprisings to working with the CIA, the Secret Service, English MI5, and one magician who actually defeated Rommel's forces in North Africa in World War II by using principles that we magicians use on stage every day. Right. Yeah. And that was masculine? Masculine. Now, there have been so many stops and starts on movies with Tom Cruise and others of trying to see if they're going to do a movie about this. Have you heard anything new about this? Last I heard is that um, Cumberbatch, what's his name? Oh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. He was supposed to be the doing the movie. I heard that too, yes. Doing the movie. I have not heard anything. I have a friend who's in the movie industry, and he told me, he says, since Tom Tom Cruise owns the rights to the movie, it'll never be done. I don't know why he says that. So he's going to just sit on it and not let anybody else do it. I, I don't know. Or he, uh, he'll let it lapse. Hmm. It's a great story. So tell me a little bit about it. Well, the whole the whole thing about Masculine is Masculine was actually, he was a third-generation British magician mm-hmm. who actually, his family owned a theater called the, the Egyptian, Hall. Egyptian Hall in, right. in London. Right. And he during the war they had to close the theater he said i'd like to be able to help the war effort by using magic principles to be able to help the war mm-hmm. and they turned him down basically they said no you can't do that 
we're not interested. You could do uh, the the USO, USO shows. USO shows. Yeah. Or what's equivalent to in England? Right, right, right. And uh, eventually, because of a friend's recommendation to, to Winston Churchill, he was accepted and was actually sent to the camouflage division, where they said uh, they said okay. Um, they actually ignored him for a while, and they said finally they said, uh, okay, here's our problem. There's no way to actually hide our tanks, tanks. in the war. So, mm-hmm. you know, can you hide our tanks in the war? And he said, okay. Masculine put a gang together called the Magic Gang. And what he would do is he'd actually have an entire... He put, he put this, this whole theme together, and he brought the entire armored division over to actually witness what he was doing. And all of these trucks were actually rolling through the desert. And he hmm. said, one of those trucks is your tank. Tell me which one. And even with binoculars and looking with, uh, with uh, aerial photographs and right. trying to even determine the, the telltale tread marks in the sand, mm-hmm. which is a dead giveaway, giveaway right. for a tank. For tank right. He said, he said, he said uh, they, they couldn't determine there was a tank there. Hmm. And actually one of the generals said there's no tank there. And so Masculine blew a whistle, and all of a sudden a, a, a canvas and facade uh, uh, covering fell down from this tank, and they found out with, within 70 feet of them, with the tank, with the, the gun pointed directly at them, wow. was a tank. Wow. And it, it shocked them. It of shocked course. them. And from that moment on, he was given anything so, he wanted to be able want. to do. <laughs> You're and, the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so mean, your magic group, what's it called? The Magic Gang? The Magic yeah. Gang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was a bunch of really ragtag people. Were they magicians or were they just they uh, were intelligence they uh, officers? Were, they, some, they were actually mostly, uh, I, I think, mostly artistic people who could actually okay. disguise things. Oh, uh, okay. One of the problems they had was being able to find camouflage paint. They couldn't do that. Back then, uh, yeah, back then they actually now, had to this take was World War II. World War II, yeah. They actually had to take camel dung and actually mix what? it with something else and actually use it as paint <laughs> to try to disguise the uh, tanks and everything else. Yeah. Did. But what I remember also was he was able to actually show a different location. Uh, so when the Germans were coming in, he made something. Uh, bright as far as the lights go, and then they had the darkness over someplace else? Yeah, that was in Alexandria. Okay. In Alexandria, Egypt, that was actually a major port in the war that yeah. was actually being bombed on a regular basis. Yes. So what he did is he built an entire model city that Holy was on cow. a smaller scale, uh, but, which wouldn't be noticed from the air. They wouldn't mm-hmm. know it, notice the difference. And it, and it was called the Marriott Bay. He'd build this 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 entire city that was a model of Alexandria, even with, with the lighthouse flashing. And what would happen is that the German bombers would, because this is before GPS navigation, <laughs> well, they would yeah. actually fly out and knowing where it was supposed to be. Yeah, they flew out and saw the lights, and they said they would bomb that area thinking they were bombing Alexandria. Right, right. And then... There was nothing there. There was nothing there. It was, it was a model city. In fact, wow. they actually had uh, just a, a pretend gunfire going off and stuff like that to be able to... Explosions going off to actually make it From look like they're, they're fighting the, the German forces. Right. And then the next day, for Their the benefit... were coming in and... Yeah, yeah. And for the benefit of the German forces, for the re- re- reconnaissance planes, they would actually have rubble th- strewn throughout the streets. They would actually put... Paint, so it looked painted, like they'd actually yeah, blown they, up the they, city. They paint the walls to make it look like so it was bombed out. So when they took pictures out. of the place, yeah. it looked like they'd actually succeeded in right. but they, blowing up over and over. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
That'd make a great movie. I really hope that Tom Cruise releases that. And I hope so, too. Some, somebody does that. It'd be awesome. Eventually. Well, as we do start to wrap up, my podcast is called The Magic Word, and I always ask my guests what it is that's your philosophy. What is your magic word? Not necessarily a word, but what is, what is it you live by? The audience comes first. Ooh, the audience comes first. Yeah. I like that. And they should. They should. Because, you know, a lot of magicians actually just say, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and they're going to enjoy it or not enjoy it. But the thing is that, you know what? It has to do with the audience. Right. It's all about the audience, right? Because they're the ones who are paying us, <laughs> yeah. who are out there listening and watching us, and we need to appreciate them. Thank you, Harry. That's been great. Always a pleasure. <laughs> it has been a pleasure. So for the Magic Word Podcast, that was Harry Maurer. This is Scotty Out. Thank you, Harry, for being my guest here this week. It was uh, always a joy to sit down and to chat with you. You have such a wealth of experience, and you are so kind in sharing stories and ideas and tips and tricks and advice and everything. So you're a great friend, and I appreciate the time that you've given us and the ability to sit down and actually uh, record this and let the rest of the world know more about you and your magic then as well. I want to remind everybody to make sure you sign up for the pod letter if you haven't yet already done that. This way you have an idea of what's going to be happening from week to week, and that is who's playing this week, who's coming up next week, and when we have contests, you'll be the first to know. Plus, I give you some suggestions from the archives for some of those podcast episodes you may have missed over the past years, and I try to uh, dredge up and make sure that you don't miss them because they are all awesome. I tell you, it's really great. And I also want to, uh, again, thank our sponsor, that is Magic at the Beach, coming up on October 5th, 6th, and 7th. Be sure to go to their website at magicatthebeach.org and get more information about who's coming, who's going to be performing. Uh, the uh, There will be three different hotels where you can stay uh, at any one of the uh, different places that are once located by the beach and one closer to the venue. Anyhow, a lot of choices and it's going to be a fun, fun time. I'm looking forward to being there. So until next week, stay well, get booked, and remember that it's all about the audience. This is Scotty out. <laughs>